Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. You're listening to the Simply Vegan podcast, the show that's all about making veganism easy, fun and accessible. Brought to you by the team at Vegan Food and Living, the UK's best-selling vegan magazine, you can catch us every Tuesday and every Thursday. Well, before we get started on today's episode, don't forget that you can try an issue of Vegan Food and Living magazine for just 99p by visiting veganfoodandliving.com forward slash podcast. Um, You can choose between print and digital plus membership to receive the latest issue to your door or to your device, which includes access to thousands of plant-based recipes at your fingertips. Today, I'm joined by the award-winning author of six books, including the best-selling Why We Love Dogs, Eat Pigs and Wear Cows. Dr. Melanie Joy is a Harvard-educated psychologist specializing in the psychology of eating animals. Welcome to the podcast, Dr. Melanie Joy. It's fantastic to have you here today. How are you? Oh, I'm great. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really, I'm really glad to be here and I'm really looking forward to our conversation. Yeah, I think a lot of vegans will have heard of you or or the books that you've written. Um, But, you know, for those that haven't heard of you, perhaps, or don't know so much about your background, do you want to just kind of fill us in on, because you studied psychology at Harvard, didn't you? When did you kind of get into veganism? Was it before that? Was it after that? Yeah, I had, um, well, I can tell you a little bit about my, my personal journey. Um, I, um, I, like many people, I grew up with a a dog who I loved like a family member. And I also grew up eating meat, eggs, and dairy. And, um, I just, over the course of so many years and so many meals, I didn't think about how strange it was that I could pet my dog with one hand while, you know, I ate a pork chop with the other. I just, didn't make that connection. Like most of us don't make, or most people don't make, but in 1989, um, I was 23 years old. I ate a hamburger that turned out to be contaminated, um, with, uh, Campylobacter bacteria. And I wound up hospitalized on intravenous antibiotics. And I was so incredibly sick that I never wanted to eat meat again. Cause you know, like the last thing you ate you just kind of swear off of. And so I became a vegetarian kind of by accident. And, um, 
And in the process of learning about my new diet and lifestyle, I, of course, stumbled upon information about animal agriculture and what I learned shocked and horrified me. I just, I couldn't believe the extent of the suffering and harm to animals and, you know, not to mention the environment and human health and everything else. But what shocked me in some ways even more was that nobody I talked to about what I was learning was willing to hear what I had to say. They would say things like, don't tell me that you'll ruin my meal, or they'd call me a radical, you know, hippie vegan propagandist. I had become vegan, you know, shortly after learning about the horrors of the dairy and egg industries. And so um, I became very curious as to how rational, caring people you know, like I had been throughout my life, like my family and friends, right. Could just stop thinking and feeling when it came to this issue of eating animals. Why did this wall go up? You know? So I did end up going to, I had been at Harvard and then I went to also study um, at, at another school, um, psychology, and I got my PhD in psychology and I studied the psychology of violence and nonviolence broadly. And then I narrowed my focus down for my doctoral dissertation, my thesis to study the psychology of eating animals. And that was what led me to write my, my book, Why We Love Dogs, Eat Pigs and Wear Cows, which is about this psychology. It's about what I call carnism, the invisible belief system that conditions people to eat certain animals. Um, and that's really sort of what started the whole thing, <laughs> started me on this path that I'm on. Um, you know, and, and now, of course, my work has expanded quite, quite substantially to include the psychology of veganism and, you know, what we'll be talking about today, which is vegan, non-vegan um, relationships and communication. It's fascinating, isn't it? I mean, it fascinates me how everyone comes to veganism in a different way. And most, you know, a lot of people, it's sort of accidental or because of a health issue. And you don't ever really come to it thinking, I've always wanted to go vegan and I'm finally going to do it. It's kind of, it's almost by accident. And then you kind of open that little door and, and look in and then there's all this information there and all these you know, all these truths that you didn't know about. And suddenly it's like, wow, this is a whole new world. Why do you think we have these distorted views then? Where do they come from historically about, you know, about animals? Well, I mean, where they, I can talk about where they have come from more recently. And of course they evolved over many, many years. And I mean, historically humans ate animals because they had to eat animals, right? We ate animals because if we didn't eat animals, we were not going to survive. And, you know, and, and in some places in the world today, people do eat animals because they have to eat animals because they are geographically or economically unable to make their food choices, food choices freely. But Many people in the world today don't eat animals because they need to. They eat animals because they choose to, and they don't even realize they're making a choice because the belief system that, you know, I call carnism, the belief system that conditions people to eat certain animals and to believe that eating animals is the right thing to do is invisible. And so what this, this belief system that I call carnism, I guess the best way to understand it is through a a thought experiment, right? So if you imagine, imagine that you are not vegan and you are biting into a juicy hamburger and your dining companion, I know, I know, <laughs> and your dining companion turns to you and says to you, you know, that hamburger is actually not made from beef. It's made from golden retrievers. So, yeah. right. Chances are your experience of the meat will dramatically change, even though nothing about the meat itself has actually changed. So your perceptions changed, right? What you had just thought of as food, you now think of as a dead animal. What you just felt was delicious, you now feel is disgusting and your behavior therefore changes rather than continue eating. You want to throw it away. 
you know, in the trash and probably even take to the streets in protest. Carnism basically conditions us to, to, uh, have distorted perceptions when it comes to those animals we've learned to classify as edible. These distorted perceptions disconnect us from our natural empathy, and we therefore act against our core values that we all share. All humans, virtually all humans, share the same values of caring or compassion and justice or fairness. So without even realizing what we're doing, most people genuinely care about animals and would never want to contribute to their suffering, especially when that suffering is so intensive and so completely unnecessary. And yet most people contribute to that suffering every single day. And so in order that people continue supporting this system, the system that is carnism needs to use these psychological defense mechanisms that distort perceptions so that people act against their values and their own interests and the interests of other animals and others without even realizing what they're doing. I mean, do you think it comes from, because obviously like um, sort of big, you know, um, industrial farming is a more recent thing, isn't it? And obviously, you know, a lot of the perceptions that we have comes from um, these big, big businesses that want to sell us this view of these happy animals running around and then, oh, they've just, you know, off they've gone and they're, now they're a delicious meal for you. And obviously, as we know, that's not true. But before that, before the industrial kind of um, farming became such a such a common thing, where do you think it came from? Well, you know, people have even even before industrial farming, right? People were more up close with the animals who were killed, who were slaughtered, you know, for human consumption. Um, people still people are, are have a natural aversion to seeing others being harmed, other humans and non-humans. You know, it's like we have um, ample evidence today that demonstrates that we are hardwired to feel empathy for others. Most people cringe when they see others being harmed and suffering, and this includes other animals. However, people have a remarkable capacity or ability to compartmentalize and to numb out and disconnect from what we're experiencing. And we do this automatically, um, often when we have to, right? So if, for example, somebody is coming in and there, some, somebody is attacking you and um, your first reaction is to probably protect yourself in self-defense and you may end up harming that person, you know, maybe even killing them in order to keep yourself alive. And so, this is quite different than people's experience of eating animals today. We don't eat animals today for the most part because we have to. We eat animals because we choose to. And so over the course of time, you know, even though when eating animals is a necessity, we certainly do need to naturally disconnect from our empathy in order to kill and consume animals. When a behavior goes from a necessity to a choice. When it's no longer a necessity, it becomes a choice. And then it takes on an ethical dimension it didn't have in quite the same way before. And people start to really grapple with this and feel increasingly ethically uncomfortable with this. And so, you know, to your to your question, like, you know, how to some degree is, is animal agriculture really perpetuating this? Um, yes and no. The system itself is self-perpetuating. Carnism is an ism. It's a system of oppression, right? It's structured in the very same way that other oppressive systems are structured, systems like patriarchy, classism, racism, and so on. I want to be really clear here. I am not comparing the experience of the victims of these systems. 
The experience of the victims, of each set of victims will always be unique, but the systems themselves are structured in a very similar way. And most importantly, the mentality that drives the violence is the same, the same mentality that drives us to support harm to other animals, drives us to support harm to other humans. Most people have no idea that they're supporting these systems. They're just doing what they've always done, thinking the way they've always thought. There are, however, certain you know institutions like animal agribusiness or animal agriculture that do have a vested interest in making sure that we remain unaware of what's right in front of us and are actively promoting this dysfunctional mentality that causes us to see animals, living beings as units of production that causes us to see the flesh of slaughtered animals as food for our consumption. Mm. Yeah, there's a saying, if slaughterhouses had glass walls, then everyone would be vegan, isn't there? So, Yeah, Paul McCartney said that. Yeah, very, very true, I think. Why do you think it's so hard for vegans and non-vegans to communicate effectively? Because there is this kind of us and them kind of notion, isn't there? And it's not always the case, but uh, you know, I, I know certainly when I went vegan, I had a lot of resistance and a lot of questions. Some were curious questions, which was great, but others were quite, you know, um, I don't know, I suppose quite negative and um, question, you know, questioning my my reasons. So, yeah, why why do you think it's so hard? Well, let me before I answer that directly, let me answer it a little bit indirectly by picking up on what I was talking about with this, these psychological defense mechanisms that carnism instills in us. So, so as I had mentioned, because carnism runs counter to core human values, it, it uses these defense mechanisms that distort our perceptions. Now, carnism is a, what's called a dominant system. That means it's so widespread that it's basically invisible, woven through the very structure of society. So it shapes norms, laws, beliefs, behaviors, et cetera. So when we study nutrition, for example, we actually study carnistic nutrition, right? People don't even realize that this carnistic bias is woven through society. And carnism is organized around these defenses so that when or or therefore, when you know we're born into such a widespread system that's invisible as carnism, we inevitably learn to look at the world through the lens of carnism. We internalize this carnistic mentality, this defensive mentality. So basically, you know, carnism causes people to feel defensive uh, against anything or anyone that would help them get out of the carnistic box. So many vegans experience like, you know, to your point, many vegans will just, all they have to do is say, I'm vegan and they'll hit, be hit with this wall of resistance, or they'll be told by somebody who's never even heard of veganism until that very conversation, all the reasons why veganism is wrong. And, you know, who's basically suddenly become an expert on their <laughs> lifestyle. Um, I'm sure a lot of listeners can can understand this. So so carnism keeps itself alive by using two kinds of defense mechanisms. One is primary. It the, these primary defenses exist to validate carnism, to make people believe that eating animals is the right thing to do. So just one example of this is we learn to believe in what I call the three ends of justification that eating animals is normal, natural and necessary. Um another example is that we learn to see 
think of farmed animals as abstractions. So we learn to believe that like a pig is a pig and all pigs are the same, that they don't have, you know, individual personalities and, and characters and lives that matter to them. So these are primary defenses. Secondary defenses exist in order to invalidate veganism. So primary defenses validate carnism. Secondary defenses teach us to believe that not eating animals is the wrong thing to do. And one of the main ways that secondary defenses get expressed or played out is through causing people to believe in negative vegan stereotypes. So for example, to believe that vegans are a bunch of animal loving overly emotional sentimentalists. Now, somebody who's overly emotional by definition isn't rational and somebody who's not rational isn't worth listening to. This is a form of shoot the messenger. If you shoot the messenger, you don't have to take seriously the implications of their message. And same stereotype was used to discredit feminists who are advocating for the right to vote, for instance. So it's so so this is this psychology of carnism is one of the reasons one of the many reasons why it can be so difficult for vegans to communicate with non-vegans and why it's really important for vegans to understand this psychology so that they don't get stuck in this battle of justifications and defenses. But yeah, but, but what about this? And, you know, to remember that underneath this difference of veganism, carnism is a relationship between people. And that's where our focus really needs to be when we're communicating. So how should we be talking to non-vegans? Should we, you know, I think sometimes you feel so passionate, you want to kind of try and convert people, like especially friends and families. I'm not talking like random people in the street. <laughs> Go vegan. But, you know, like when someone's really, you know, you, you love your family and your friends, your children, you want them to be as healthy as possible, that you want them to share, you know, in all the knowledge that you've learned. So is that, you know, is that the wrong way to go about it? Well, I mean, first of all, I will say so. So, so in my book, Beyond Beliefs, a guide for um, improving relationships and communication for vegans, vegetarians, and, and meat eaters, um, I, I talk about this. And I, one of the things that I, I really emphasize is how important it is for vegans to recognize that that sense of urgency they feel like you wake up to the atrocity that is carnism, the global atrocity that is carnism. And you can feel incredibly compelled to use like every minute of your day to try to raise awareness, to end the suffering and end the bloodshed. And and it can traumatize us. And we can talk about that a little bit later. So I want to normalize this feeling, this sense of urgency. It makes sense. It's a sign that your moral compass is working. And at the same time, this sense of urgency, even though it's a natural, a normal response and a healthy response can get in the way of our ability to communicate effectively because we can suddenly feel like we are responsible for turning everyone around us vegan. And that if we don't do that, we have somehow failed. And it can also make us believe that we can't have healthy connections with people who are not vegan. None of that is actually true. The more invested we are in the outcome of a communication, influencing the other person's attitudes and behaviors, the more we're going to come across as, and in fact, be controlling you know, to them. So it's really important to not be invested in the outcome and to also recognize that it makes sense to want your friends and family to be vegan. And it's not really family relationships and friendships are not really a forum for advocacy. So one way to think about this is to, um, well, to also appreciate that one of the reasons that it's so hard for vegans to communicate um, about this issue. One reason is because carnism 
causes people to be really defensive and have distorted perceptions. Another reason is because when we're awake to this atrocity, that is carnism, we feel this sense of urgency and in fact can have become traumatized and that affects our ability to communicate. And a third reason, probably most important, is because communication is hard for everybody. Vegans are people and people on this planet typically don't get a single formal lesson in how to communicate and relate effectively, even though we generally have to use or learn complicated geometry that we'll probably never need to use. Um, But the good news is that there's like a lot of information about, and, and I write about this in my books, you know, how to communicate effectively. So when you are talking to you know, if you're a vegan and you're thinking, oh my God, you know, I really want to communicate with the non-vegans in my family, for instance, first thing to to think about is, you know, or to, to appreciate is that many people in the world today are, are not ready. They do not feel ready or able to become vegan for a whole variety of reasons that we don't have time to get into, but they're reasons that are valid to that person. So, you, you may communicate with somebody, you could communicate perfectly, and they may nevertheless still not be willing or able to move toward veganism or become vegan in the way that you're asking. And I always recommend rather than asking people to go vegan, asking people to be as vegan as possible, you know, because only somebody personally knows what's, what's possible for them. It's also important to recognize that family relations, families, and especially close friendships These are the most difficult conversations of all to have because there are existing power struggles that can get in the way, existing stereotypes we have in our minds about each other, so on and so forth. I always recommend that vegans not ask the people in their life to be vegan, but ask the people in their life to be what I call vegan allies or probably more aptly put vegan supporters. Okay. So how does that work then if, if, you know, people are vegan allies? Well, so what it's many people are very resistant to even beyond with, you know, taking carnism out of the equation, people in general, adults do not like being told what to think and how to be, how to behave. They're very automatically resistant to this. Um, But what is appropriate, and it's not really appropriate in a relationship, you can tell somebody, this is the impact of your choices on me. This is how it feels for me to be in your orbit when you're eating animals, when you're doing these things versus I want you to stop doing these things. I mean, you can choose when you're in a relationship with somebody, of course, you can choose what you can and can't tolerate and need to, how we communicate about that matters. And so what I always recommend for vegans is to, to talk to the people in your life that you have any degree of closeness with and say to them, listen, I really would love to be able to share information about veganism with you, not because I'm trying to turn you vegan, but so you understand me. The thing is that we cannot have any genuine connection with another human being if we don't really understand their inner world. If you're in a relationship with somebody who's really into cars and you could care nothing about cars, you nevertheless need to find a way to learn about cars and be interested enough or you're never going to really get this person. So you absolutely, as a vegan, have a right to say this. And I think a responsibility too. I need you to understand me because veganism is really important to me. It's central to my life and it matters so much. So I want you to know why. 
I want you to know what it's about. And, you know, as you invite somebody to be a vegan ally, or I would say a vegan supporter, um, you invite them to understand your world, to look at the world through your eyes. And this way, when they're communicating with you, they understand the sensitivity. They understand why it is that, you know, when you're at a dinner table and they're insisting on having, I don't know, the turkey front and center of that table and you, the vegan, are at that table, it's really painful for you. And you can even bring this up, you know, when, when you're talking about, you know, allyship, you can even share with the person, you know, I'd love to be able to, to, to tell you, you know, to share with you some requests that would make my life a lot easier. It would make it a lot easier for me to, to whatever, be at dinners with the family. You know, when we have meat right on the table, as much as I wish this didn't happen to me, it does. When I look at that piece of meat on the table, I don't, I don't see food. I see a dead animal and it brings back automatically these images that I have in my mind of videos I've seen of slaughterhouses and what happens to that animal. And it's so painful for me. And I feel so disgusted, probably the way you would feel if somebody had a dead dog in the middle of the table, no matter how hard you tried to get the images out of your head, you probably couldn't. And so you help the other person know what the world looks like through your eyes. And many vegans find that they don't actually need the people in their life to be vegan in order to reestablish connection. They just need them to be vegan supporters. They just need to feel known, understood, witnessed, and respected, and to know that the people in their life are sensitive to their needs as a vegan. That's brilliant advice. Thank you. I'm picking up loads of tips here for my family. (laughs) I mean, I have converted a few, but my mum's still vegetarian. So (laughs) there's there's um, there's that sort of awkwardness there. I mean, let's talk about language. Do you think that as vegans, we should change the way we talk about things? Because that can, that can make people uncomfortable. I know going back to my mum, you know, when I say she'll call it sort of dairy milk, normal milk. And I'll always say, well, it's not normal. And, you know, it's a bit of a joke, but um, should we, should we change the way we talk about things, even though it can make people, you know, uncomfortable? Well, I mean, that's a really good question. I want to first speak to like, you know, what you said about converting people in your family. Um, and and again, this is like, I mean, I know because I grew up in a family and and I remember having conversations with my family members and I, I understand how people want that, how we all often want that because the assumption is it's going to be so much easier to relate to you. But there's also this feeling, like I said, that so many vegans have that it's up to us. It's up to us to change everybody around us and we're doing it for the animals. We're doing it for the cause. The kind of change that we need to see happen, which is happening, fortunately, but the kind of change that's really going to do the most for the animals is not affecting one person at a time. It's broad institutional change. And so it's really important also for vegans to kind of kind of pick their battles, you know, and with all the time I've talked to so many vegans, you know, all the time we tend to spend on that one family member, like, oh my God, if I could just get through to uncle Bob and crack him (laughs) open, I know there's a heart of gold in there, you know, we could have reached maybe 50 other people who are more receptive to the message. And so, you know, to really not feel this pressure of, you know, needing to sort of convert people, um, certainly, 
Yeah, because because family, as I said, is 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 really quite tough. So, in terms of the language that we use, yes, we have um, my organization Beyond Carnism runs the Center for Effective Vegan Advocacy, and we have a lot of materials for support materials for vegans or anybody who wants to help promote veganism about how to advocate as effectively and strategically as possible. Um, and people can get this information at carnism.org or veganadvocacy.org. Um, we do talk about language and the importance of choosing your words carefully. And we want to like, it's a fine line, right? Because we don't want to collude with carnistic culture and use these euphemisms that mask the reality of what's actually happening. And at the same time, we don't want to shut people down to the message we're trying to share with them. And so that's a fine line and it's going to change based on, you know, who you're talking to. So in some cultures, you know, or some societies where there's more awareness of veganism, you can be a little bit more open with your language. Um, other cultures, not so much. So I would say that you know, there are certain, there are certain words, I call them allergen words, you know, people basically have an allergic an emotional allergic reaction to them, like murder, for instance, like you say, well, meat is murder. I mean, basically what that means is that the person you're talking to, you're communicating with, hoping to open them up to this conversation is thinking, okay, now you're calling me a murderer. Mm. And as soon as somebody feels that they're being put down or looked down on, they will, and there's plenty of studies corroborating this, they, they become defensive and they shut down to further communication. So I would say, choose the words that you use carefully and read your audience, you know, learn effective communication skills and, and just like learning effective communication skills will help you do this, but, but read your audience and you can say, you know, cow, cow's milk, you know, as opposed to normal milk, you know, what you call normal milk is cow's milk. And, you know, fortunately soy milk is actually normal milk for a lot of people today. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's really good. I mean, you you had asked about the you know the sort of struggles that that you know why why do we struggle in communication? And I had said you know carnism makes it hard to communicate, um, and we don't learn communication skills. And also the psychology, I call it reactive vegan psychology, um, which is a psychology that we develop as vegans. The part of vegan psychology that is a reaction to dealing with carnism and the pressures of living in a, a dominant carnistic world. And one factor that affects the this reactive vegan psychology is um, what's referred to as secondary traumatic stress. You may have heard of post-traumatic stress disorder, right? PTSD. Yeah. STS is, is the same, basically, except the only difference is that it affects the witnesses to violence rather than the direct victims of violence. It's really just a matter of semantics. When you witness you know, slaughter and violence and torture and the things that many of us have witnessed in this cause area, this movement, um, you can become traumatized by that. And when we become traumatized, this is, um, this really can have an impact on us psychologically and emotionally, and also on our ability to be effective advocates and ambassadors for this movement. It can drive us to have a sense of urgency with our mission that is, um, becomes almost toxic. It can cause us to develop what's called, um, what's called what I call, um, a trauma narrative, which is, um, a worldview we develop where we place in which we place everyone, including ourselves into one of three categories, victim, perpetrator, or hero. 
these are the actors, you know, in a traumatic event and we lose any nuance. Um, You know, we have very rigid boundaries around these. So we end up believing, well, if you're not a victim, you're not hanging up, you know, in a slaughterhouse, you know, and you're not a hero, meaning you're not being all perfect all the time, then you must be a perpetrator. And we can end up holding others and ourselves to impossible standards. One slip up, one bite of a cookie that's not vegan, or, you know, you're going to your grandmother's house and she's like made you your favorite vegan food, except that it's not vegan. You know, (laughs) what do you do? So we, we lose the capacity to have flexibility in our, you know, toward ourselves, moral flexibility and practice flexibility that's necessary to, to help us stay sustainable. And we can start, you know, communicating with others and with ourselves in a way that's very toxic and moralizing and, and harmful and brings about the opposite outcomes of what we want. So one thing that's really important for vegans and, you know, people listening, I think can probably relate to this, or a lot of people listening can relate to this is to stop looking at those graphic pictures and stop watching the videos. And I, if, if I had, um, you know, a, a nickel for every vegan who has told me, well, Melanie, I feel like I have to watch because compared to what the animals go through, the least I could do for them is sit through two minutes of footage. And like, you're not helping animals by sitting through that two minutes of footage. What you're doing is you're feeding your own trauma. And the more you feed your trauma, the less effective you're going to be at helping those animals no longer have to suffer. So do not take in any more material if you don't absolutely have to. And be very careful when you share this material with others. Give people the option of saying, no, I don't want to see it. Make sure you get their consent or put a warning on a video you're putting out, but get their consent if you want to show them graphic imagery. And frankly, you don't really need to show a lot of graphic imagery to get people. It just takes a few seconds, you know, to open hearts and minds. And sometimes you don't need anything, but get people's consent first um, before sharing with them. And this will help reduce the level of traumatization in the movement, which will then increase um, the effectiveness and the impact that we have. Oh, that's... That's really good to hear, actually, because I have spoken to people on the podcast and they've said, you need to be watching this. You need to know what's going on. You need to be sharing it. And I, I'm i not comfortable with that at all. I cannot watch these, you know, these documentaries and films that are so graphic and, you know, the undercover footage, because like you say, it, it just traumatizes me. And I, and I don't, you know, I, I then don't want to follow the, these people. I don't want to have anything to do with it because it's it's provoked that response in me. Um, and obviously, you know, if you're sharing it with others, then it's going to do the same to them. Yeah, I mean, but you're right. And you make a really good point. And, and this is important for anybody who wants to raise awareness about this issue. It, it makes rational sense that people would assume that if you see this terrible imagery, it's going to motivate you to work harder, or it's going to inspire you to become vegan or or whatever it may be. From a psychological perspective, however, from, from, from what we understand in psychology, you know, there's only so much a person can take in and people are very, very different in their response to this material. Some people get very easily traumatized. Some people never need to see it. And generally people who are exposed to this imagery without their consent Um, can really end up being harmed by it rather than helped by it. And I think it's really important for vegans to be aware of this in terms of how we do our outreach. Most people, when they see something, when they see a movie that's made, you know, or a video that's being shared on Facebook, they shut it down. They just turn away because they don't want to deal with the pain of witnessing that. So we have to be very thoughtful and very strategic 
in how we communicate and raise awareness. And we don't have to hit people over the head with bloody imagery to open their hearts and minds. So just to finish, what would be your sort of top three tips perhaps for, you know, communicating effectively, getting along with with the non-vegans in our lives and in the wider world? Well, I think that everybody vegan or not, um, really needs to learn to build, to build what I call relational literacy. That's the understanding of an ability to practice healthy ways of relating. When you understand this, your life changes. The more relationally literate you are, the easier your life is and the more effective your communication is. So that's not a tip, but that's a suggestion to, to make this a priority, to really, really prioritize your own relational literacy. We have, we have tips and um, information. I have a whole book just on building relational literacy called Getting Relationships Right. There's just lots of information out there. The other thing I would say is remember that or be aware of the fact that in every communication, there are two parts. There's the content and the process. We tend to overfocus on the content, but the process matters more. The content is what we're talking about or communicating about the process is how we're communicating. If you think about a conversation you had six months ago, it's pro- possible you just forgot the entire content, but you still remember how you felt in that communication. And that is because um, the process determines how you feel. When your process is healthy, you d- your agenda is not to be right, which means to make the other person wrong. It's not to win, which means to make the other person lose. The debate model is usually counterproductive often counterproductive. Your your goal is to understand and be understood. It is mutual understanding. So commit to building a healthy process and learning about this. I mean, there's, there's a lot of information out there. So commit to learning and building your skills. And, you know, it's, it's not rock and science. Anybody who wants to learn and grow in the area of relationships and communication can absolutely do so. So those are the the really the top two tips that I would share. Um, and yeah, and I, I encourage people to, again, we have a lot of free resources and we, you know, we are a service organization. And what we want to do is to provide resources for vegans and people doing important social change work in the world to help them to do so more effectively. I think if I were to add actually a third a third piece to this is that if you want to be an ambassador for veganism and an effective ambassador for veganism and to really help push this movement forward, commit to learning how to be strategic in your decision making and in your advocacy. Whereas, you know, don't just assume that because you care so much and because you're as vocal as you can be, that that's the most effective being vocal the way you are is the most effective use of your time. You can learn how to be strategic and how to be effective. And again, we have a lot of resources to help people who who want to improve the effectiveness of their advocacy and their advocacy choices. Amazing. Dr. Melanie Joy, you've been absolutely fantastic. We're all off to do some further reading now, I think. <laughs> Everyone listening will be Thank heading you. to your website. So that's carnism.org. Is that right? That's right. Yeah. Thank you so much. Oh, thank you. It's really, it's been such a pleasure.
Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.